It is always a joy to be with you and uh, to be back in El Paso. I think I've shared with you a number of times that my wife's family lived here uh, for 20 years. So this was like a second home to us. We, we love El Paso. Uh, we love the, the mountains. And so now I live in Florida that has no mountains. Doesn't even have hills. It's just flat. It's so flat that uh, when you drive past a, a landfill, little children say, look, mountains. So uh, it has, El Paso has a wonderful beauty that maybe living here you don't appreciate, but coming from where I do this, the southwestern part of the United States really is a very beautiful part of our country, as is other parts. We, we have a beautiful country uh, that has very different areas. And, Florida has its own beauty, uh, but one thing we don't have is seasons. Uh, you have seasons, it gets cool in the wintertime. In our wintertime, it gets less hot. And so we deal with that, but uh, it's just a joy to be with you. I wanna share a little story with you before we begin. A man was in a shopping mall walking around and he noticed a sign in a pet shop that said, talking parrot, $50. So he was surprised at how cheap it was, and he walked into the pet shop and uh, asked the pet shop owner why it was so cheap, because parrots are usually hundreds of dollars, and this was a very colorful big parrot. And the pet shop owner said, well, this is a beautiful bird, but I have to tell you, he's so cheap because uh, previous owners have given him back. He's got a really bad attitude, and he uses foul language and you may have a hard time keeping him. So you may, you may want to think twice. And he thought, how bad could it be? So he took the bird home, uh, cage and a cover and all of that. When he uncovered the cage, he walked up to the cage and said, Polly want a cracker? And the parrot began cursing at him. And he thought, wow, this is bad. And so he thought maybe the parrot just needs to get a little exercise. So he opened the door of the cage and the birds flew around the house a little bit, landed on his hand, climbed up his arm and began pecking at his face. Now the man was like really upset and he grabbed the parrot, threw it back in the cage, closed the cage door, put the cover on the cage and the parrot stayed quiet. Next day he did the same thing and the same thing happened. Parrot used all bad language, pecked at his face and this went on for a couple of days. <coughs> Finally, he just thought, well, I'm gonna give him one more chance and uh, then I'm just gonna get rid of him. And so he opened up the cage, the parrot flies around, lands on his hand, and again, starts cursing at him and pecking at his face. He grabs the parrot, opens up the freezer door in his kitchen and throws the parrot into the freezer and closes the door. And the parrot starts flailing away, making all sorts of squawking noises, and then it just stops. Now he's thinking, I killed the parrot. So he opens up the door to the freezer and the parrot kind of shakes off the ice and comes out and very slowly walks on the man's hand and walks up halfway up his arm, but doesn't peck his face. He stops and said to him, I'm really sorry. I've been a bad bird and I want to apologize if I've offended you with my bad language and my bad attitude. Please forgive me. And the guy's shocked. And the parrot looks at him and says, I realize that I need to change my ways. If you give me a second chance, I promise I will change my ways. Can, you, can I have a second chance? And the guy said, sure. He says, I just have one question for you. 
can you tell me what did the chicken do? I'll let that one sit. It usually takes a while. That has nothing to do with what I'm going to share with you, but I just, I like telling those stories. You can blame Pastor Charlie. He asked me if I was going to tell a parrot joke. When I was about 15 years old, Charlie, you got me worried about this microphone. I don't want to hurt it. When I was about 15 years old, uh, my first cousin asked me to be a, a groomsman in her bridal party. And I was all excited. Uh, I had barely met her fiance, but I started hanging out with them. But it was hard to hang out with them for a 15-year-old. I was basically a jock. I played football and baseball and really wasn't interested in girls that much. And they couldn't keep their hands off each other. They were disgusting. And, you know, if I hung out with them, they, they would be there. They would be kissing and hugging and touching. And I thought, ooh, this is really gross. They really seemed to be so much in love. They got married, eventually had a son. And after 12 years, they got divorced. What happened? Billy Joel, in his song, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, talks about Brenda and Eddie, who were the popular steady and the king and the queen of the prom. And it says, Brenda and Eddie were still going steady in the summer of 75 when they decided that marriage would be at the end of July. And then he writes, they got a divorce as a matter of course, and they parted the closest of friends. You ever wonder why it's so hard for marriages to make it? Uh, I'm going to do a little bragging. Uh, my wife and I, in our next anniversary, are going to be married 46 years. And um, nobody applauds for that? I mean... We got married in Alabama. We were nine years old when we got married. Um, <laughs> but one of the reasons that marriages have a hard time making it, and, and the statistic is pretty sad, one out of two marriages don't make it. One out of two. And that goes for Christian marriages as well. The st statistics don't really change all that much. So why do so marriages Yes, even Christian marriages have problems making it. Why do people seemingly fall out of love? My cousins seem to be so in love, and then they so easily fell out of love. The answer is we live in a broken, fallen, sin-stained world. We're broken people, and though we're reluctant to admit it, we really don't follow God's example when it comes to relationships. There is an unwillingness, really, to give grace and mercy, and most of all, forgiveness. Forgiveness is a biggie. And in all my years as a pastor, I have to tell you, uh, the number one reason that I find marriages don't make it is because people are unwilling to forgive one another for hurts. And maybe some of you have been hurt badly by someone and you're struggling with forgiveness. But when you look at what God has forgiven us of, it changes things dramatically. What I'd like to look at this morning is, is looking at God's example of love, what God's love is like, particularly God's love for Israel, especially his love for unfaithful Israel. Uh, our, our Pastor Charlie mentioned 
that on Wednesday nights you went through a study on the book Hosea. And Hosea is a hard book to study because it's not an easy book to read through because the poor guy was given the unenviable task of being a teaching tool for God to show what his relationship with Israel is like. Because God told Hosea to marry a prostitute, an unfaithful prostitute who was willing to sell herself even after being married to the highest bidder. And God equates Israel with Hosea's wife, Gomer, an unfaithful prostitute who just prostituted herself. Israel went after all sorts of gods and it was equated to harlotry, prostitution. And so when we look at that, we then have to come to grips with the fact that God never stopped loving Israel. What I'd like you to do was turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. And I want to mention why I think this is so important. And my point is this, to truly understand God's love for you, to truly understand God's love for you, you have to understand God's love for Israel, especially Israel at their low points when they were unfaithful. When I was a relatively new believer, we were doing some door-to-door evangelism. And um, the person who was teaching me how to do it said, when the people open the door, uh, all you have to say is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Very easy. Say, my name is Rich, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I was petrified. It was one of the hardest things I ever had to do, to go and open, you know, knock on someone's door and share the Lord coldly. And so the first door I knock on, and I'm, I'm literally shaking, I'm so nervous. The first door I knock on, they open up the door and they say yes. And I said, hi, my name is God and Rich has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> Didn't quite come across the way I was supposed to share it. God does love you. And in order for you to truly understand that love and the depth of that love, because we use the term love and we look at how we love one another, we look at how we love our our spouses, our children, our parents, and yet all of that is from a human perspective. We need to understand God's love for Israel so that we can understand God's love for us. So let's look now at Jeremiah chapter 31. We'll be looking at the first six verses, but I'm going to begin with the first three verses, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest... The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Now, when Jeremiah wrote these words, Israel was at such a low point spiritually that God was on the verge of taking them out of the promised land due to their gross idolatry, going after other gods. And, you know, today, unfortunately, we have a view of idolatry Uh, that 
that tends to be more statues and things like that and, and you know, old icons, things uh, from different religions. Idolatry here meant gross sexual immorality, child sacrifices, all sorts of horrible things that Israel had no problem doing uh, in the different places they were at. And so it got so bad that God, uh, and he said this through the prophet Jeremiah, who by the way was called the weeping prophet, because most of what he shared with Israel was, was really bad news that caused him to weep. But yet here, in the midst of all of this, he has a message that's a message of encouragement. I mean, Israel, about to go into exile as a foreshadowing of what the tribulation period would be, and ultimately the last part of the tribulation called the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, when they would go through horrific persecution uh, and so many would die. It's gonna happen in the last days. And so with all that said, if you were God, and we should all be happy that you're not, but if you were God and you were going to give a message to Israel, what would you say to them? About to go into exile, their gross idolatry was, was so horrific that you had no choice but to take them out of the promised land and into captivity in Babylon. What would be your message? Would it be one of, I told you so? You know, like a mother scolding her child for not listening and facing the consequences of that? I remember as a young boy uh, up in New York, right after a pretty bad snowstorm. We had about a foot of snow on the ground. School was closed, and I was about to go outside and play with my friends and have a good old snowball fight. You probably don't do too many snowball fights in El Paso. And as I was getting ready to leave, my mother yelled out, don't forget to put on your boots, you know, rubber galoshes to go over my shoes. I left wearing just my sneakers, pair of jeans, and a light jacket. And I got soaked from, literally from head to toe, from my neck all the way down to my feet. My, my sneakers were soaked through, my socks were wet. And eventually I got a really bad cold to the point that I had to miss school. And, and my mother scolded me for it. You know, reminded me that if I would have listened to her, I might not have had to face the consequences. But that's not what the message is. It's not an I told you so. The message here is I've loved you with an everlasting love. Even though you are in gross idolatry, even though you're acting the part of a prostitute, I still love you. That's how God loves Israel, and that's how God loves you. And so what I'd like to do this morning is look at God's love for the world, for repentant sinners, but through the lens of God's love for Israel. That's how you'll understand how much God's, God loves you. So let's look more closely at this passage and consider four things that are revealed about God's love. Number one, God's love is personal. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. God chose Israel by his sovereign love. And by this love, he keeps Israel. He watches over them. One of my favorite Psalms is the Psalm that says, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. 
He's always on the job. You never have to worry that God somehow is not going to be paying attention. He's going to be too busy to see what's going on in your life. And you could take that verse and substitute your name because the truth still holds. He who keeps, and put your name in that, neither slumbers nor sleeps. God is always on the job watching over you as one of his children. It's so simple. God loves you. It seems to be almost simplistic. Yet, this is perhaps the most profound reality of the Bible. The God of the universe, the one who created the universe out of nothing by a spoken word, that same God is not indifferent to you, but rather knows you not from a distance. Remember that Ben Midler song? God is watching you from a distance. I hated that song. It was so theologically wrong. God's not watching you from a distance. He's watching you up close and personal. He knows everything that's going on in your life. He has a personal concern for you. And this is really the significance of the gospel, God's personal love for you. It's the main example, or the main explanation, I should say, for the sacrificial death of Jesus. God didn't send, just send some messenger to say, you know, knock on the door and say, you know, God loves you. But rather, he came in the flesh to demonstrate that love to all of us. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet, we were yet sinners, Christ, the Messiah, died for us. That's a message that I don't think we take seriously enough sometimes. To God, love is a personal matter. He loves each of you individually. And I can't, can't think of anything that's more encouraging. The Hebrew word for love is the, the word achav, which is synonymous with, with the agape love of the New Testament. It's desiring the greatest good for the object of that love. And in, in this case, it's you. God loves you in that way, personally. He does have a wonderful plan for your life, and he only wants what's best for you. Our problem is we struggle with good, better, and best. And we don't always know what's best for us, but God does. And even as he demonstrated that love for us personally, we need to respond personally to him. That's why it's so important for us as individuals to respond to the gospel message personally, to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior personally. We don't accept him as part of a big church, but we accept him as individuals. We go into heaven to be with him individually. We don't go into heaven because our parents or our grandparents were godly and observant Christians. We have to, each one of us, accept him personally. And that's a hard thing because I've known some wonderful godly people who through no fault of their own have had children that have just walked away from the faith, wanted no part of Jesus. Could you put the Lucy slide up? I like putting this slide up because it usually gets this, this reaction. What on earth is he gonna do with this? How many of you like Charlie Brown comics? I love the Charlie Brown cartoons that are on TV, but this is not my favorite character. This is Lucy. Lucy is a mean girl. And she's especially mean to Charlie Brown. Remember the, 
the little cartoon where Charlie Brown's kicking a football and she's the holder. Just as he goes to kick it, she moves the ball and he ends up flat on his back. So that's Lucy. But in one particular cartoon, Charlie Brown sees Lucy in this hut. It says, psychiatric help, five cents. Not a bad deal, actually. And Charlie Brown's curious as to why Lucy would want to be a psychiatrist. And so he says to Lucy, Lucy, why do you want to be a psychiatrist? And Lucy very nobly answers him, because I want to help mankind. Very noble answer. And Charlie Brown says to her, but I thought you hate mankind. He says, no, I love mankind. It's people I hate. <laughs> See the difference? We have a tendency to make the gospel about mankind. But the gospel needs to be about people, about you and I. The prophet Isaiah, more than seven centuries before Jesus went to the cross, wrote this. He said, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being, for our peace, our shalom, fell upon him. And by his scourging, by his stripes, we are healed. You know what the problem with this verse is? We have a tendency to make our broad. What Isaiah was writing was that he was pierced through for my transgressions, for my sins. He died on the cross because I'm a sinner. He died on the cross because you're a sinner. See, the gospel has to be personal because God's love is personal. That's why we share one-on-one -on -one with people because it's a personal message. We share how God has changed our life and encourage people to accept Jesus so that he could change their life. So it's a very personal message. Number two, God's love is perpetual. And you'll notice all of the points will begin with P. Uh, that's because I'm obsessive compulsive as most pastors are and they want all of the points of the outline to alliterate one another. And I found out from Sessie that Pastor Charlie does that too once in a while. So, perpetual. What am I trying to say? I have loved you with an everlasting love. The last time I looked, everlasting meant lasting forever. God's love for Israel, in spite of the fact that they played the harlot, as the Bible said, wouldn't change. He never stopped loving them. From experience, we know that virtually everybody has a breaking point. And for those of you who've had those kinds of situations where broken relationships, you got to a point where you weren't physically and emotionally capable of taking it anymore. And you just said, I give up. I can't do this anymore. And that's understandable from a human perspective. God doesn't do that. God never comes to a point where he says to you, you know what, that's the seventh time you've done that and I just can't take it anymore. You and I are done. God won't do that. The eternal God never will give up on you. And that's hard to grasp. It really is. The Bible tells us that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. 
God views things from a very clear, eternal lens that at this point in our lives, we're not really capable of fully grasping. We try to, and we have days where the Holy Spirit really is leading us, and we can see things from that kind of lens, but we tend to be very much here and now kind of people. We view things from our situations and circumstances. You know, I, I love when I hear people say, you know, I just got a new job, I just got a new house, my kids are doing great, God is so good. But God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. It's hard for us to say God is good when we're struggling. It's hard to say God is good when we're going through some difficult times. But when we understand how much God loves us by looking at how much God loves Israel, even in her worst state, that gives us, as Paul writes, a peace that surpasses all human understanding. It's a peace that people from the outside just can't grasp. They can't understand it without knowing the Lord. John 3.16, you're all familiar with it. It's more than just a placard. It's more than just what football players put on their eye black. It's a real verse that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, it's hard for me to come to grips with that. And I'll tell you why. And you all look like really nice people. I have three kids, a girl and two boys. And I have never once thought of giving one of my children to pay for your sins. Hasn't crossed my mind. We can't truly grasp how much God loves us, that he was willing to allow Jesus to die on the cross, die what was at the moment the most excruciating death ever invented, and maybe that has ever been invented. People didn't die on the cross from the wounds. They died on the cross because eventually their lungs would fill up with blood and they would asphyxiate. And from what I've read, it's the most painful and horrible way to die. And that's how Jesus died. That's how much God loves us that he allowed that to happen so that our sins could be paid for. That's how personal God's love for you is. And it's forever. God will never give up on you. No matter how much you struggle, no matter how much you stray, God will never give up on you. His love is everlasting. Have others given up on you? Are you in church today realizing that nobody is thinking any, much of you anymore? They've all given up on you. You've gotten to that point where you've sunk that low. God won't give up on you. And maybe you have someone in your life that you've given up on, maybe a wayward child. God hasn't given up on that wayward child, and either should you. How is God's faithful and his personal and perpetual love seen today? It's interesting. It's through Israel, through the Jewish people. The fact that you have a Jewish believer standing here in your pulpit, and I'm 100% Jewish on both sides of my family. The fact that I'm 
here as a Jewish believer, part of the remnant that Paul talked about clearly shows God's faithfulness, clearly shows God's love for Israel, that he's allowed a remnant, even to this day, to be staying. A couple of weeks ago, I shared a Passover Seder at a big church, and there were a number of people who were brought by friends who were Jewish and they were not believers in Jesus. And one woman could not get past the Holocaust and the fact that God allowed six million Jews to die in the Holocaust. And she was looking for me to try to defend that, and there's really not all that much you can say other than that as much as God loves the Jewish people, that's how much Satan hates them. And the Holocaust really has some tremendous satanic overtures to it without getting too much into it. But the reality was that she could not get past that, that she could not see God's love for the Jewish people and at the same time allowing the Holocaust to happen. And it's, it's a hard one uh, to have a conversation about, I have to be honest. But God's faithfulness is also shown in the fact that in spite of the anti-Semitism that has crept into the church over centuries, primarily Catholicism, but also in some other denominations, all of that emanates from the fact that replacement theology is so prevalent in the church. And what replacement theology is, is simply that Israel has been replaced by the church. And so therefore, God doesn't love Israel anymore. God loves the church. And any reference to Israel is talking about the church. What that allows is allow, it allows for anti-Semitism to creep in. The church is not Israel. But you who are faithful Gentile believers here in El Paso, Texas, with a love for Israel and a love for the Jewish people, that's, that's a blessing and a way to show God's faithfulness to the world. The fact that there are churches who love Israel and love the Jewish people show God's faithfulness. It's how I came to faith in Jesus, through the faithful witness of a Gentile believer. Which brings us to the next point. Number three, God's love is powerful. God's love transforms lives. I mean, each of us can testify how our lives have been dramatically changed. I mean, if you knew me before I was a believer in Jesus, you would have known me as a guy with a foul mouth, with a chip on his shoulder, and with a hair-trigger temper. And so to work my way through college, I worked as a bouncer in a bar and in a nightclub. And I used to love to get into fights. People today tell me, you're so gentle, you're like a big teddy bear. And I have to chuckle at that because the truth is, you didn't know me before, what I was capable of, and how the love of Jesus changed me from the inside out. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've, therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. 
I am so thrilled that God draws us to him. He doesn't drive us to him. We have a tendency as new believers especially to drive people to Jesus, to want to take over for the Holy Spirit and do the work of God and get people saved. We have a zeal uh, that's wonderful, but sometimes misplaced. I have a sister who I love dearly who told me how obnoxious I was as a new believer. And it took me a long time to tone down and realize that I was doing more damage uh, than positive things. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't share your faith with your loved ones. What I'm saying is be careful how you share your faith and how you show God's love because ultimately, ultimately that's what draws people to Jesus, God's love. I want to teach you uh, a Hebrew word. Would you like to learn a, a Hebrew word? Okay, clear your throat. <laughs> the word is chesed. It means, it's translated in English, loyal love or loving kindness. It's a covenantal kind of love. Uh, psalm 136, uh, the, the word is used throughout the psalm. And the, ver the first verse of Psalm 136 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. It's that same word, loving kindness, loyal love, steadfast love. It's love that has a covenantal aspect to it. It's who God is in character. And it is a powerful, powerful love. I was raised in a traditional Jewish home, uh, went through training for my bar mitzvah for five years in Hebrew, Hebrew school. And then after my bar mitzvah, after I was in essence a fully functioning member of the Jewish community, so they tell me, I drifted and went as far away from it as I could. In fact, growing up in Brooklyn, New York, uh, there were really only two religions that were there. You were either Jewish or Roman Catholic. There were an occasional Lutherans, but we didn't pay much attention to them. Evangelical was a term that I didn't even know existed. But the point is, I thought that all religions, and when I say all religions, I meant Judaism and Catholicism, were corrupt and irrelevant, and I didn't want any part of it. So uh, in, in my studies, I found that many of the founding fathers of, of our country called themselves deists. They believed in a God, uh, held to Judeo-Christian principles, certainly, uh, but they were not part of any religion. And so I thought, well, that's a good description of me. I'm a deist. And I, I began using that term. I thought it made me sound smart. And then God brought someone into my life to share the good news of Jesus with me. A Gentile man from, of all places, Texas. Could you imagine that? Here's this foul-mouthed New Yorker and somebody with a southern draw from Canyon, Texas is the first person who shared the Lord with me. I mean, this guy was unbelievable. His life was so different than anyone I had ever seen. He was always upbeat and happy, always, always uh, looking for the best in people, never a bad word coming out of, him, out of his mouth. And eventually I said to him, what's the deal with you? Why are you so different? 
And I remember when he said this to me, looking me straight in the eye, he said, are you sure you want to hear the answer? And uh, I didn't know what was coming. He did, because he knew I was Jewish. And I said, sure. And he told me that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. And after he told me it was because of Jesus, I could easily dismiss what he shared with me. That was not a problem. I told him, Jesus can't be the Messiah. My people have died because of Jesus. And I used the Holocaust. And I told him the Messiah is going to bring peace in the world. There's not peace in the world. The world's just getting worse and worse. But I couldn't deny the reality of his faith. And ultimately, that's what drew me to Jesus. It was the love of God that I saw through him. And ultimately through my wife and the change that happened in her life. God's love will never give up on you and will never fail you. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God doesn't draw us with better laws, with a list of do's and don'ts. God draws us with greater love. Love that's personal, love that's perpetual, love that's powerful. Which brings us to the last point, and that I think is the key point. Number four, God's love is pointed. This is all about Israel. God was speaking to apostate Israel at their lowest point, about to be taken out of the promised land into exile for a whole generation, for 70 years, because of idolatry that was so terrible, it forced God's hand, so to speak to take them out of the promised land. When through the prophet Jeremiah, he said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Clearly, God has a special love for the church. And I want you to not misread what I'm saying. God loves the church. The church is the bride of Christ. No other group could say that. We are unique and distinct as the bride of Christ. But... Again, the church is not Israel. God has not forsaken Israel, and God will not forsake you. No matter how deep in sin you fall, no matter how far away you wander, God still loves you. That's how you know, by the way, God loves Israel. People tend to forget the context of this. If we forget who this is specifically addressed to, we can forget God's special love for the Jewish people. And if we forget God's special love for the Jewish people, then we can misunderstand God's love for us. Again, God will never give up on you. You will never drift too far away from God that he can't draw you back to himself. And maybe you're here today and you're far from God. I want to encourage you to come back to him. Listen to the last part of this section, beginning in verse 4. Again, I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. See that word? We're talking about Israel, who had sunk so deep into idolatry that God referred to her as a harlot. And now, as he says, you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel, he's not only talking about 
rebuilding, he's talking about restoring to their original relationship with him. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters will plant and will enjoy them, for there will be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim call out, Arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Now, much of this has been fulfilled since 1948. If you get an opportunity to go to Israel with Pastor Charlie, he will show you places where the desert has bloomed again, where you'll see fruit of all kinds coming from this little nation, a desert uh, that was virtually uninhabitable at the turn of the 20th century. But this is also speaking about a time when Jesus returns and when all of Israel turns back to him. That's a sign of his return. You know, a few weeks ago, we all celebrated what we call Palm Sunday, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, beginning the Passion Week. But a lot of times we don't pay attention to what happened after he entered Jerusalem. Jesus wept over Jerusalem as he looked over the city and realized that they did not understand why he came. He wept. And then he said this, he says to Israel, you will not see me again. Until you say, and he used a beautiful Hebrew phrase, Baruch haba b'ashem Adonai. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A sign of Jesus' return is going to be Jewish people turning back to him. And I want to encourage you that we're seeing more Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus than at any time since the first century. We're getting closer and closer to his return. And we should be encouraged by that. And what will ultimately bring Jewish people back to Jesus? They'll be drawn back by God's love. Personal love, perpetual love, powerful love, and very pointed love. And as those of us who love Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and now Savior of the world, we all need to recognize that we have a role in bringing the good news of the Messiah back to the Jewish people bringing the message back to the original messengers. Uh, last service, I asked people to raise their hand. How many of you have a Jewish person in your life? Let me see by a show of hands. How many of you have a Jewish person in your life? About the same number as the second service. Not many. And I realize El Paso, Texas is not New York City that has two million Jewish people. But nonetheless, there's a substantial Jewish community on the west side of El Paso. And I want to encourage you in this way. That man who shared the gospel with me, after I became a believer, and he shared some things. And he said to me, now he transferred. I, I worked for a big oil company, and he transferred from Houston, Texas, to New York City, where the headquarters was. And he said he had, as far as he knew, had never met a Jewish person in his life. So he prayed that the Lord would bring a Jewish person in his life that he could make an impact with the gospel. And I was the answer to that prayer. So I would encourage you, for those of you who didn't raise your hand, pray that God would allow a Jewish person to come into your life, that you could make an impact on that person with the gospel. And in the meantime, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray that God would work in the hearts 
of both Jews and Muslims and Arabs and Druze and all the people in the Middle East who would come to know Jesus as their savior. One of the most remarkable things, if you get a chance to go to a church service or a Messianic congregation, one of the most remarkable things that you'll see is Jews and, and former Muslims worshiping Jesus together as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a remarkable thing to see as people who previously hated one another now share the love of Jesus with one another. It's an amazing thing. and something that we could see. Do you want to understand God's love for you in a better way? Then look to the scriptures and understand God's love for Israel. Understand how much God loves the Jewish people as his chosen people. In their worst, he still said they were the apple of his eye. He still said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's how much God loves you. No matter how far you drift away from him, you're never far enough for him not to draw you back. So I want to encourage you to be involved, to share your faith. And if God so allows, to share your faith with a Jewish person. Here in El Paso, or maybe while you're walking the streets of Jerusalem, if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Well, let me just share about our book table. And I brought a number of articles of Judaica that unfortunately are almost all gone. So there's a few things left that I would encourage you. There's, I think there's one shofar and a couple of Passover Seder plates and some other Passover elements. But there's still, still plenty of books left. And this is a book about Passover called The Messiah and the Passover, written by the staff of Chosen People Ministries, which will, it's like a textbook on, on understanding the feast of Passover and all the ramifications of it. I would really encourage you to pick that up. And this was published after last summer. We had a, a tour of Israel celebrating the 70th anniversary of, of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Uh, we had 600 people attend a Bible conference. And uh, this book came out of that Bible conference. These are the different presentations. And this book, Isaiah 53 Explained, and we have it in English and in Spanish. It's been written in 12 languages. Is the clearest presentation of the gospel you'll come across from the Old Testament. So if you have someone that you want to share with, whether they're Jewish or not, this is a wonderful way to share with them. And the way we encourage you to do it is read the book, pass it on to them and say, read this book and let's talk about it. Start a conversation. Uh, because as you heard, Isaiah 53 is the clearest presentation anywhere in the Old Testament of the gospel. And then this book is by Dr. Michael Radelnik, who's the professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute. He had been a, uh, one of the leaders of our ministry for a long time. He wrote a book called The Messianic Hope. And it's, it's a wonderful way to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of Christians think Jesus showed up in Matthew 1. And that's not the case. You know, as John writes in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then he writes, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so this is a book that I would recommend for you to have an understanding, have a, a good understanding 
of the messianic hope in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled, fulfilled all that.